0: Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. And welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. Really excited that you are here with us on today's episode. We're going to be talking about Restoration and reconciliation and wisdom. Uh, but before we jump into the content, I'd like to take a moment to remind you of Peaceworks University. You know, week after week, we mention Peaceworks University, and I'm so thankful for all of the uh, listeners, uh, podcast listeners who have joined us at Peaceworks University. It really is your best next step. If you're benefiting from what you're learning on the Peaceworks podcast, then Peaceworks University will give you kind of a cheat code. Uh, We have all our materials organized and prepared. We have video-based materials, handouts, worksheets, infographics, live Q&As, and much, much more uh, past vault of of our materials. And so it really is a great next step if you have been benefiting from the PeaceWorks podcast. So today we're going to be talking about restoration and reconciliation. This comes up because I've been receiving some feedback from pastors, some frustration from ministry leaders who are trying to navigate issues of abuse within the context of churches and ministries. And I think there are some um, well-meaning, good-intentioned folks who are perhaps doing some damage inadvertently maybe they maybe maybe purposefully and there that's probably not who's listening to the podcast I'm guessing that most of our listeners are that are pastors or ministry leaders are really trying to navigate the seas of abuse ministry well uh, but there there are some misses that are happening in the church community that we want to address today and respond to some concerns from pastors who are having a hard time doing things well. Before we jump into some of those specifics, let me remind you of kind of the biblical framework for restorative ministry. We we tend at PeaceWorks to lean very heavily on Galatians chapter 6. Now, we also lean heavily on 2 Corinthians chapter 7 for like the fruits and the marks of repentance, but we lean heavily on Galatians 6 when we're training and teaching folks about restorative uh, ministry or confrontational ministry. And so you might recall from Galatians 6, Paul writing to the church says that if if one of them, if one of their brothers or sisters is caught in a sin, um, the idea here isn't really a, a surprise, but uh, not like, oh, I'm caught in a trap. But it, there is a an idea of being trapped, of being, of succumbing, perhaps to sin, and so you find a brother or sister who is really in the throes of sinful behavior and sinful choices. That would certainly fall within the abuse category. We love this passage because of so many parallels to the work that we do with uh, abuser intervention. But you know, Paul says, "Hey, if if a brother or sister is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual." should restore such a one. So there is a notion that spiritual maturity, the idea of prepared, equipped individuals should be engaging in this work. Now there's a lot of debate out there about this, and I know there are some folks who they, they want to very narrowly qualify individuals who are intervening, but I'm a little broader, and I think that's a reasonable biblical expectation that The expectation that Paul's giving the Galatians is not someone who is necessarily an expert in trauma or dynamics and impact of abuse, although that's always helpful when you're working cases. The real hallmark is someone who's spiritually mature. This is someone who has walked the path of life for some time, who has grown in the knowledge of the gospel and grace, mercy, and also responsibility. They understand the components of repentance and change, and those are the folks that should be engaged in the process. I bring that up because, quite frankly, and and I don't mean this as a general statement for all pastors, but I do think there's a reality that within the American church, there's a lot of folks who are operating in the pastoral office that really have no business being pastors. I know that sounds blunt. It is blunt. It's meant to be somewhat aggressive because I do think there are a lot of individuals serving in pastoral capacities that are not spiritually mature. And perhaps they are um, have a great deal of charisma. perhaps they're very intelligent. Maybe they are even great at managing systems. but but be reminded quickly because this will come up in a moment. When Paul talks to Timothy and Titus about qualifications for leadership, remember that character is the top priority. That character precedes skill, that and also precedes giftedness. It also precedes charisma, and so pastoral ministry is much more about character and calling than it is about skill and charisma. You can always learn skill, and uh, sometimes you will be in pastoral ministry. Be challenged with your ability to to um, draw out individuals or or be. Charismatic in your approach, and that's okay because that's not a requirement for leadership. But character is that's important to this discussion because one of the hangups, one of the things that I think we're struggling with greatly when we talk about restorative ministry. So, we're going to go back to Galatians 6 for a minute. When we're told, if a brother or sister's caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, spiritual, mature people, restore such a one. But my question is, restore to what? We're going to talk about how to restore in a moment, but I think one of the big hangups is uh, we're really conflating what it means to restore a brother. And I just want to be very, very clear that I believe what Paul's talking about is restoring them in their relationship with Jesus, not to a position, not to status, and not to an institution. Uh, those all have conditions, as we'll see in a moment. But our relationship with Jesus does not. And I think what happens is that we get so excited about the potential of change. We love to see uh, sinners repent. Bob Kellerman, uh, a friend of mine, says, it's horrible to sin, it's wonderful to be forgiven. What a great statement. It's horrible to sin, it's wonderful to be forgiven. And so we do rejoice in the notion, the process of, of forgiveness. We love that. And I think sometimes we get so excited that we conflate even genuine repentance and forgiveness with the elimination of consequences. And so we might rush to restore individuals to things that they have no, no right or no um, obligation to participate in. Uh, if you committed an act of, let's say, sexual assault on a minor, even I had this discussion with an investigator recently who said there is a functional difference, all right? We're not talking about a moral difference. He said there is a functional difference in how we approach a 20-year-old who has an intimate relationship with a 17-year-old in a student-teacher relationship and a 40-year-old who does that. And a lot of it's cultural, the way he put it to me. And I can get on board with that. It doesn't mean that one is moral and one is immoral. It just means that one is functionally different than the other. Both are abuses of power. Both are concerning. And I would suggest both are disqualifying. In that, would I want to send my children to a school where a teacher had a history, regardless of their age, of grooming and engaging in intimate relationships with a student? That would be a very difficult decision for me and I think for most folks. It doesn't mean that the teacher um, could not experience consequences and accountability and even if they're a believer, for re- repentance and forgiveness. It just means that perhaps they're not well-suited to work with children and the behavior and the choices that they made in the past will affect their future and their present. That's all I'm getting at. And I think Galatians 6 actually teaches us that principle. So we're told, you who are spiritual, restore such one. Do it with gentleness. And and you've heard me talk about restorative principles and why it's important to approach confrontational ministry with gentleness. Just to reiterate some key points is that we want to avoid the tit for tat relationship. We want to avoid in our case as as abuse intervention, bullying the bully. We want to really maintain high character. Gentleness being the idea of power under control, we want to maintain self-control and discipline throughout the process. We don't want to lose our cool. We don't want to get in a a verbal shoving match with the individual. We don't want to try to manipulate them as much as they may try to manipulate us. We want to maintain a very steady course in the truth and a very open posture uh, to repentance if the individual is willing to do the work. I think that's a powerful principle is that we remain gentle in the process. I do think there is a, an approach, a very heavy-handed approach that individuals take that I think is ineffective. Uh, but I think gentleness is effective because um, of what Paul is, first of all, instructing us to do. It's the biblical approach. But then secondly, uh, it it doesn't call us to sin in order to see sin eradicated. It calls us to righteousness and to holiness. Uh, remember, too, Galatians 6 says that this individual process, we're not comparing this individual's process to someone else's. I think that's a big miss in the church as well, where we say, well, here's what we did the first time, so here's the formula to do it every time. That's not how confrontational ministry works. We're not comparing and contrasting. We're dealing with the individual in front of us. And then to to this point, and this is what I'm getting at with the, the illustration of the teacher, the law of consequences is in effect throughout this process, because Galatians 6 says that God will not be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. If he, if he sows to the flesh, he'll reap destruction. If he sows to the Spirit, he'll reap life. And so I do want to make it clear that even when genuine repentance occurs, even when forgiveness is granted, there is, there, there's not a guarantee at that point that consequences will be eradicated. And let me go back to uh, the conversations with the pastors who may be listening. So we've got pastors who may be listening in, and I think what happens, and and I welcome the feedback on this, but I think what happens is that we in pastoral ministry, we ourselves get caught in a trap because we are um, kind of exposed to another person's sin. Usually it's very graphic, very quick, um, oftentimes very public. And so, by the time a pastor, especially in in larger settings, I found this to be true, is exposed to the sin of abuse, all right? Whether it be sexual abuse, um, abuse of power, uh, physical abuse, domestic abuse, or other aspects of abuse. By the time we're exposed to the sin, it's pretty graphic. And so, our first response may be, not always, but maybe, especially to um, abuse that we feel is well-established, sexual abuse being a great example, right? We may go, that's awful. We have an emotional response. That's awful. And that's a healthy response. We should be responding to all abusive behavior with that cringe of, that's an awful reality. That breaks my heart. That hurts my spirit. We engage in confrontation, and I think we do it poorly overall. I think a lot of times we simply start investigating rather than confronting, but that's another podcast for another day. The perpetrator, in our case, experiences a level of contrition as the heat gets turned up, as individuals get exposed, and he might say, I'm sorry. We see that level of contrition as a win because the sin is so awful We don't want to feel like that anymore. We would much rather celebrate change than live in the dark corner of trauma and destruction. I hope this is making sense. And so when there's any level of contrition, we tend to run to celebrate, to say, see, the gospel works. That is true. The gospel is effective, right? We know this to be be true. Paul even says he's not ashamed of the gospel. Right? It's the power of God unto salvation, and, and it's inclusive. And so we know it's for the Jew and the, the Gentile. Right, It's for everybody. And so we want to hold that banner high, but at the same time, we've got to be careful that we're not running to celebrate forgiveness and repentance at the expense of the harm and the destruction that has been done. Again, I think a lot of this is based on emotions. I, as a pastor, don't like feeling the darkness, and the weight of sin. I love the concept of repentance and forgiveness. I believe when when we sing His Mercy is More on a Sunday morning, I believe the line about the vilest and the poor. I believe that there is forgiveness available for the most desperate, dark, and destructive among us, and that ticks some people off who really want me as a a pastor and somebody who talks about this to say that once an abuser, always an abuser, and there's no hope. And I, I just don't believe that. However, I also think we run far too quickly and too often to celebrate contrition and tears and words of sorrow without patiently waiting to measure and test Godly sorrow. And if I could go another step further with that, I'm not sure that this is worth that kind of celebration. Can I be that bold? And let's just use an example. Let's go back to the sexual abuse example. Uh, someone in pastoral ministry, uh, grooms, uh, a, a young lady develops a sexual relationship with them. Um, and it's exposed. And we all get on the, the right page, the correct page, that you used your position to develop this relationship, that it, it was um, a person in power using that influence. That's abusive. We call it what it is. The individual acknowledges that. They not only say that they're sorry, but they seem to put in the work. Um, May I recommend not bringing them on stage and applauding that? Applauding what should happen when a sinner is confronted? Applauding what should happen when destruction occurs? Instead, we should be caring for the victim. We should be seeking restitution. We should be continuing accountability. And I think sometimes we get so excited at the possibility of a a desperate, sinful situation being redeemed that we cheapen the process and in turn harm the victim because remember going back to galatians 6 we're we're here in this moment because sin is so sinful right sin is so destructive and it's so destructive that when someone's caught in its web as a believer the spiritual among us the mature among us are called to confront them to confront them gently in a winsome way not comparing and contrasting but holding them accountable understanding that that God's not going to be mocked that people experience consequences so one of the wisest i think things that we can do in the process of calling sinners to repentance is recognizing and discussing consequences when we as leaders remove consequences in the name of restoration i think we undermine the very process of restoration and let me wrap up with with maybe another approach when we're confronted with the weight of sin especially sins that are abusive we should have that emotional response this is awful but that should motivate us to help the perpetrator acknowledge for lack of a better word the awfulness in other words Are we actually asking them questions and helping them see the severity of their sin? Helping them see the way God sees their sin? Are we drawing them into a relationship where they're actually grief-stricken? So we're hearing things like, I am hurting, I'm angry, I'm humble, I'm willing to accept the consequences. I never I, I don't care if I'm ever in a ministry position again. I just want I just want to be in a relationship with Jesus. When we have a willingness versus a willfulness, then often we can uh, we can step into uh, that work. You know, it is horrible to sin and it is wonderful to be forgiven. Uh, but that doesn't mean that consequences um, end. And I bring all this up because I think what we've seen time and time again is church leaders commit grievous acts against people. And we desperately try to draw a line to restore them to ministry rather than drawing a line to restore them to Jesus. You know, I, I've i been in ministry for 23 years vocationally. Um. It's the only thing I've really done professionally, but I know that I could do other things. If I needed money, if I needed a job and ministry wasn't available to me any longer, I could referee basketball games, I could Work at the coffee house if I had to. I could get a job at Best Buy. I could do some consulting with some other things that I've done. I could find a way. And our insistence on individuals who even have even repented of sexual abuse, domestic abuse, restoring them to ministry positions or to the institution which they came from, I think that's a bit premature. That's where I'm coming from. Uh, I think the ministry especially is a high calling and a high standard. It should be, even if it's not. Um, I actually think marriage and being a husband and a father is a high calling and a high standard. Nobody does either one of those perfectly. But that doesn't mean that they can't be forfeited. And power, control, abuse, and destruction are pretty key areas um, that disqualify us from a lot of positions. So, Restoration, yes, but let's start with restoring people to Jesus. Um, let's celebrate the gospel more than we celebrate um, individual appearances. Let's really make Jesus a priority, not so much pastoral ministry or um, quick restoration or unification. I really think if we make confrontation and Repentance and forgiveness, the priority in lines with the gospel, will avoid a lot of the emotional traps. The, the premature celebration, the overemphasis of someone's salvation, uh, and I think that's part of it too. Salvation, the same faith that san- saves is the same faith that sanctifies, right? So we're, we're happy that individuals are saved, but we're not happy that they stay there. Right? We want them to move into holiness. So I appreciate everybody taking the time to listen. I, I know that this is a clumsy topic in some ways, but some of my pastor friends are really struggling. And, and my encouragement to you is to begin from a position of being emotionally connected, not to the celebration necessarily, but to the gravity and the weight of what we're dealing with. Take your responsibility in Galatians 6 very seriously. Be a gentle restorer that doesn't wipe away consequences but participates in consequences. Hold high the standards such as 2 Corinthians chapter 7 of the fruit of repentance and see uh, if that does not serve you and your church a, a little better than accepting contrition followed by celebration. All right. Thank you so much for being part of the PeaceWorks podcast. I appreciate everybody who tunes in week after week. If you'd like more, you can head on over to chrismoles.org. Be sure to listen to all the past episodes if you'd like to catch up and consider PeaceWorks University. All right, folks, thank you so much. Till next time, God bless.